seated. Good morning. It's a joy to be with you guys as always. It's, uh, and so soon, I feel like I was just here. Uh, and it's a wonderful to be back with you. And it's for the first time lovely to have my family with me this morning uh, to come down with you and, and celebrate the Lord's Supper with you and to hear from the word, hear from the Lord. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 15, our gospel reading from this morning, if you have it in front of you. This particular section of Scripture gives us a series of parables that the Lord is going to tell. It begins with this reading in verse 15, or verse 1, excuse me, the parable of the lost sheep. It goes on to the parable of the lost coin. In verse 11, it picks up with the all-famous parable of the prodigal son. Then moves into chapter 16 with the parable of the dishonest manager. And he will go on like that, and he will give a picture of his parabolic teaching, excuse me. The Lord chose to teach through parables because he knew something that we know intrinsically and without normally being told. And that thing that he knew is that the human mind wraps itself around story. We love story. Our hearts cling to a good story. When we go see a movie or we go see a play or we read a book, a lot of the time I believe that when we walk away from it, we say, eh, it wasn't that great. Sometimes it might be the performances, some sure. But a lot of the times it's because the story isn't something that we cling on to. It's not something we grasp. It's not something that we latch ourselves to. And we understand that story is that means by which truth penetrates. I would argue that the two primary means in which truth is passed on from generation to generation are story and song. Story and song. Now, for those of us who are of a more conservative persuasion, I have become firmly convinced that one of the reasons why we are currently losing the culture war is because we are more concerned with data and facts and the other side is more concerned with telling a story and story is that which the human heart latches onto so we should not be surprised we need to learn as our lord who was the consummate and great storyteller to tell captivating stories to make captivating art to make beautiful music that uplifts the soul and drives the heart and mind toward the things of God. But in reality, the Christian church in recent years has settled for cheap knockoffs. Most of Christian TV is utter garbage. Most Christian movies are utter garbage. Most Christian music that we hear on the radio today is a cheap knockoff of what we heard 10 years ago on secular radio. We... At at one time, the Christian church was at the forefront of art and story. We painted the Sistine Chapel. We built cathedrals. We composed symphonies. Right now, we're sitting in a Lutheran church, and who among us cannot stand in utter awe at the corpus of music written by Johann Sebastian Bach for the glory of God? 
in that German Lutheran tradition. And so the first thing that I want to say before I even jump into the text is that we as a people need to once again latch on to the reality that we must be storytellers. When people come to us, we shouldn't say, as I am always tempted to say and often do find myself saying, and you should know that as I'm preaching any sermon, the first person I'm preaching to is myself. Because I need to hear all of these things. But we should fight the urge to say, well, statistically, what happens is this. No. We should say, let me sit down and tell you a story. And so the Lord did, does this. The tax collectors in verse 1 and the sinners were all drawing near to him. Did you catch that? The tax collectors and the sinners. It's a little bit repetitive from a Pharisee's perspective. Tax collectors were sinners, but they were a category all their own. But they were being drawn to be near Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. You see that wherever Jesus goes, the weak, the broken, the sinners are all latching on to him. They are drawn to him. They come before him because they sense their brokenness. And the Pharisees cause a ruckus. This will be seen further on in the disciples of Jesus, most especially the Apostle Paul. And it seems that wherever, anywhere Peter or Paul went, there was a huge uproar. N.T. Wright, who is not particularly one of my favorite theologians, but said something that I find funny. He said, when the, wherever the Apostle Paul went, there was a riot. Wherever I go, they serve tea. That should say something. That should say something. But to us, we should be, as our Lord, a beacon for the broken. We should have written on our faces and on our churches, not literally, but we should have the reputation of being a place where the broken can come and find nourishment and find love, not to tolerate, not to tell them you're completely fine the way you are, because none of us are completely fine the way we are. We come to him as we are, yes, but we come to him in order to be changed by him. And so he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? In his parables, Jesus always pulled from analogies that they knew. Jesus, as you well know, was born in a city, in a town, surrounded by sheep pasture. Shepherding was something very well known to this culture. They knew that if a sheep got lost, the shepherd would leave the rest where they were in the pasture and go looking for that one. Now, we may tend to think, well, isn't that sweet? Isn't that nice? But we also have to remember that in the ancient world, livestock was wealth. This would be like, and we'll see this in the next parable, this would be like you sticking a nice, crisp $100 bill in your pocket 
and then going somewhere, and when you got where you were going, reached in your pocket and couldn't find it. You'd go looking for it. You wouldn't just say, oh well, good luck for the person who finds it. You would go looking for it. They were something of value. And they would go and take time, no matter how dangerous, no matter what it costs them, because often when they would go and look for the sheep, they would find them in the clutches of a wolf or a bear or a lion or a thief. This was not just simply wandering around looking for a sheep that was wandering aimlessly. Normally, or very often rather, if a sheep had gone missing, there was a reason. Either an animal or a thief took them, they fell into a hole, something like that. But there usually would be some kind of hazard involved. But they would go. He tells them, which one among you wouldn't put aside everything and go look for that one? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me. For I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. This section, the first half of chapter 15, you could very well title this section, even though my Bible says the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the coin. I think it would probably be more proper to call this The joy of God. The joy of God. How often or how infrequently do we consider and think about what we could do to bring God joy? To bring him joy. And what brings him joy? Well, here Jesus tells us. And I find it really amazing that so many people talk about that we don't see Jesus as a joyful person. I think he was a serious person, don't get me wrong. I don't think that he was running around frivolously laughing at everything. But I think that he was a joyful, joyful person. Because he is the personification of the joy of the Lord. And he came with the purpose of seeking and saving the lost. And he found them. And so he would be a man of joy. I think that G.K. Chesterton is way off base when he says at the end of his book, Orthodoxy, that of all the things in the scripture, the thing we never see from Jesus is his mirth. I think Chesterton is off base there. Because I believe that every time a sinner comes to Christ, we see the mirth and joy of Jesus. And we see what brings him joy is the salvation and the repentance of a sinner. The finding of one who is lost. He goes on. Or what woman having ten silver coins? In Greek this is drachma. A drachma was a coin that was equivalent to one day's wages. One day's wages. And she has ten of them. And so she has been presumably storing up her earnings for a little over a week. Presumably either to save them or to do something with it. And she has lost one. 
If she loses one, a whole day's wages. Imagine an entire day's worth of your salary just poof, gone. You lost it. If she loses one coin, does she not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? Of course she does. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found one coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is more joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. In the first parable, he says, There is more joy in heaven. And in this one, there is joy before the angels of God. The angels are getting in on the joy. What he's saying here is that at the, at the redemption and the repentance of a single lost soul, heaven erupts in praise. Heaven erupts in praise. And very often when we hear about people coming to Christ, being found by him, redeemed by him, we might say, oh, yay, that's great. Praise the Lord. Here's the offering plate. (laughs) But when we hear about those coming to the Lord, we should erupt with a joy that we can't contain. Because it is what gives God joy. It is what causes the angels to cause such a ruckus that the heavens shake. The seeking of that which is lost is the purpose for which Christ came. And the commission that he gave to his disciples at his ascension was to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that he has commanded. This is the mission that he gave the church. This is our mission. This is our mission. This is what we are called to do. When we gather for worship, our mission is to glorify God corporately together. But our mission as the church is to take the kingdom of God out of these four walls and into the world. The mission of God on earth in the church is to cause the world to become paradise. Is to heavenize creation. It is to spread his kingdom far and wide. That is our job. And the question for all of us that we have to think about very clearly as individuals, as the church, is are we taking that responsibility seriously or are we showing up to a liturgy and playing church and going home? That's the question. And are we prepared to face the lions and the tigers and the thieves and the robbers and the cliffs and the holes and the swamps? Are we prepared... Are we willing to do that? And if not, we have to ask ourselves why. We have to ask ourselves why. I have to ask myself these questions all the time. And it's a question that every single one of us and every church and every Christian, every pastor, everyone who claims the name of Christ has to ask ourselves. Now, there are those who will say every Christian has to be an evangelist. I don't know that I necessarily would use that language. 
It is for every Christian to be able to give a response when we are asked about the hope that dwells within us. Yes. But there are those who are called specifically to be evangelists. But there is evangelical work that each one of us should do and are required to do. And one of the chief pieces that has to be in place in order for us to be able to do this is humility. We have to be humble enough to know what we can do and what we can't do. We have to be humble enough to know who we are and who God is. I've said this before, and I'll continue to say it. Many times we think that humility is self-abasement. We say negative things about ourselves, and so that's humility. No. Humility is being honest about yourself. Honest about who you are. About what you are good at and what you are not good at. About what God has gifted you with and about what he has not gifted you with. About what you are able to do and what you are not able to do. And we have to begin with that level of humility. We have to begin there. Humble before the Lord. And it is in that humility that the Lord will grant us wisdom and strength. Because the Lord exalts the humble. But he will push down the proud. And so if we are to be a people who rejoices over the lost, who seeks the lost as our Lord did. If we are to be a church, not just here at Christ Church, but a church in America, a church in the world. If we are to be the church, then we must have this before our eyes as our work, as our mission, as our goal to proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and to go and to seek the lost sheep and bring them home. And when we have to rejoice in such fashion that the very rafters that hold up this roof cannot contain it. Let's pray.